I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Welcome to Bubble Trouble, conversations between The Economist and author Will Page and myself, independent analyst Richard Kramer, where we lay out some inconvenient truths about how financial markets really work. Today, we're in conversation with our sixth special guest, discussing hyper-competition in the hedge fund world. More in a moment. Welcome back, and I'd like to welcome Seth Wonder to our show. Seth, welcome. Thank you. It's good to speak to you guys. I started my career in the late 90s, originally joining Morgan Stanley as an equity analyst in the mutual fund business. And I was fortunate enough at the time to get thrown into the uh, tech bubble, if you will, and covering all different types of tech, media, telecom companies who were coming public back in that period. I then spent the next four years at two different mutual fund companies, both Morgan Stanley and Oppenheimer Funds. And then in 2004, I had an opportunity to join a hedge fund, also as an equity analyst. And so from 2004 all the way through 2021, I've been at various different hedge funds, first as an equity analyst, then as a, a co-portfolio manager, and then over the last five years running my own fund as well. And throughout that period of time, most of my focus has been in innovation-oriented themes across tech, media, telecom, and then sp- spilling into the rest of the economy as tech has obviously permeated everywhere. So I recently left the hedge fund business and I joined a tech company as a chief investment officer at the fintech space. Hmm. So you've seen plenty of bubbles. Do you have enough fingers on both hands to count the number of bubbles that you've seen in those two decades? It, I mean, I've read so many books too, going back to like the 1500s, 1600s. So <laughs> yeah, I, I got them all. Well, I, I'm just interested in this journey that you've been on, and I'm sure Richard will take it from where you are now. But just when you looked at the credit crisis kicking in 2006, 2007, exploding by 2009, what were your reflections on that, that point when you know, liquidity dried up. I mean, as a hedge fund operator, were you caught at the crossfire of that one? Yeah, you know, there's a couple of different things in that. First off, we were focused on tech companies at the time. And so you're trying to understand what the spillover effect is to the general economy. I've always had this saying that I try to impart on analysts that work for me, and it's certainly relevant to that period of time, which is, you know, when things are good, they're usually far better than you think they can be. And when things are bad, they're far worse than you could imagine. And the reality <laughs> is, is... Yeah, that was one of those periods where like you you sort of knew something bad was going to happen, but you really didn't appreciate how bad it was going to be. The biggest issue that we had, though, more broadly, if you look at the hedge fund business or just investors in general, is you always have a disconnected time. If you look out over 10 years, things are fine. But when you think things are fine over the next 18 months and your investors aren't comfortable with what your definition of fine is, 
you've got all sorts of problems. And I think that's where the illiquidity mismatch really caught up with a bunch of funds. I think people in the hedge fund space really ended up unscathed, but learned a ton. Uh, and, and hopefully I took a lot of that with me in the in future endeavors. So one of the themes we've been exploring, Seth, has been hyper-competition and this notion that when there are very low barriers to entry, everybody dives in. And I think, like you talk, Will talked about the fingers and toes last time, I've lost count of, of the sheer number of hundreds of tech hedge funds out there that have either gone through the birth-death cycle or been born and are still going today. How do you think about the nature of competition among investors for figuring out which of those few dozens of prized tech stocks are going to drive all the performance. Yeah, you know, the competition in the market has changed so dramatically in the last really 10 years, but you know, I could go on longer than that. It's not just that there's a, a plethora or too many hedge funds, particularly, let's say, long short equity funds focused on the same tech stocks and so forth. It's that the overall market competition across various participants has changed dramatically too. I mean, when I started my career, you know, I'll never forget the first portfolio manager I worked for. And, you know, he used to yell at me every day when the market would open, like, why is this stock up 5% or why is this stock down 6%? And you'd make a few phone calls or you'd figure, call the company and you'd realize that they presented at some conference and some fundamental news was put out in the market. And the people who paid attention early enough to that really moved the stock. And it was sort of a human to human combat. You know, and now we've gotten into the situation where the stock market opens and a whole swath of companies will be up three to 5% out of, on, and they'll be on nothing. Uh, and it'll be because some computer algorithm decided to rebalance its exposure to growth or value or interest rate sensitivities or short interests and so on and so forth. So the competitive set is not just long short equity funds. The problem is, is that there just aren't that many high quality companies. And, you know, and so when you look at the nature of where we're investing, we probably can all pull together the most amazing 15 tech companies that exist out there. And so if you don't own them, you sort of miss out on returns. And if you do own them, then you just have this generic portfolio that everyone has. And so when you've got thousands of funds chasing, let's say 25 higher quality ideas, there's a crowding mechanism that happens and, and we all end up sort of looking fairly generic and consistent, but we can unpack that more. But it, it's a crazy dynamic with the number of people chasing the few ideas that are out there. Seth, certainly you have one experience, which I'd, I'd love you to reflect on, which is, I won't say going activist, but getting heavily involved, prodding a company to change itself that had underperformed dramatically. And do you think a fund manager is in a great position to force a, a, a company that should know its own business better than anyone to really change how it functions. You have to question whether, in some cases, the managers are just looking for a quick return as opposed to doing something that the, the management may have taken a lot longer to achieve. So it's a delicate balance. Well, you can go back through the public disclosures. So in 2017, we released a, a bunch of letters and, and interactions with Etsy at the time. It was a very collaborative experience for me, you know, having met with the board and management teams and so forth. So I have the most utmost respect for how they changed some of the processes inside the company. It really created a tremendous amount of value. Uh, I think the, hmm. the fine line is that most people who are in the hedge fund space who take that sort of activist or the made up word of suggestivist role, you know, they're really doing it from a pure value creation standpoint. Like we want you to spin off this underperforming business. So we want you to uh, buy back shares. We want you to lever the balance sheet. And, yeah, those all have like that quick fix aspect to it. And I think it does a disservice to companies over the long term. 
But I do think that there's a purview of broadness that you have by sitting in the investment community where you can see what best execution looks like. And when you're looking at a company that could have a great end market and a great value proposition and maybe isn't executing at the what's called the efficient frontier of where they could. I think if you can be helpful in a way that's constructive, it goes a long way. And, and so like I know from talking to companies, whether investor relations or CFOs, and now being at a company uh, myself, what you realize is that that top 1% of investors that really know what they're talking about are wonderful to collaborate with. And that information flow goes both ways. It's the rest of them that have lots of opinions sort of seem a bit misguided. A lot of companies operate and they myopically execute to what they think is in front of them. And if you can sort of expand the horizon a little bit and show them maybe some best operations and best practices that you've seen from other companies. Yeah, there's a space for that. And it should be done carefully. I had a good experience with it. I, I believe the company had a good experience with it. And given the opportunity to do it again, I certainly would. But I do see other press releases and moments come about where hedge funds are asking for some sort of dramatic change. And you could look at it with a skeptical eye and realize they're just generating some fees and want to, and want a quick return. And I guess everyone has freedom of speech, but that's not the way we've approached it. I've always thought that being an analyst and understanding the company means you have to be able to, as if you were working at the company, understand what's realistic for them, as opposed to being a 20-something kid who says, okay, smarty pants, just sell this division. Well, you know, there might be 10,000 people and jobs and livelihoods involved and, and a lot of other stakeholders and considerations that that 20-something-year-old won't ever consider. And it's just not realistic to ask a management to take a snap decision like that. Just peeling back for a quick second there, those references that Seth gave us about short-termers and just reminds me of going home to Edinburgh and meeting James Anderson, Chief Investment Officer Bailey Gifford, and asking him, how's the fund management industry today? He's like, it should hold its head in disgrace because they're selling at the peak and they're buying at the trough. Your job as a fund manager is not to arbitrage opportunities, it's to fund successful businesses. Very simple thing to say, but very easy to forget. And it's, it sounds like that problem is rearing its head again at the moment as well. I feel like a student with two professors on this podcast, but I remember learning the Keynesian beauty contest at university and I always apply it in media. I'm just wondering whether there's room to apply it here, which is if I'm asked to judge three beautiful models as to which one's going to win, I use my judgment call. But if I'm asked which of these three beautiful models is going to win based on the judge's view, I put my mind in the heart of the judges to work out what they're thinking. So I'm no longer thinking for myself. I'm thinking how would the judges call this one? That applies to financial markets, and it must apply in a special way, given you've got algorithmic trading, retail trading exploding. So kind of hold my hand and walk me through this one. Who are the judges, and do the judges still have that influence that they once had? So that point is should be taken into two different angles, and I think they're both super important. So first off, when you're researching a company, the self-bias that people have is sometimes overwhelming, right? So first of all, the judge should be the customer. You, know, you may not like Twitter, but if millions of people do, well, then right. they, they must be doing something right. So first of all, when you look at a company, you got to objectively look at like what they're accomplishing, who their customer is, and put that in its place as opposed to just your own opinion. But when you look at the market, you know, the thing that I think people forget, and I've forgotten it too over a period of time, is that stocks are just a function of supply and demand. And we could academically say something is overvalued and, and all these other good things, and, and, and we've read all these books, but it's supply and demand. And today... Demand is a function of lots of different factors, computers being one of them. You know, probably the biggest demand driver in the market today is ESG. You know, look at like Tesla's stock is up, I think, 55 or 60% in the last 30 days. 
it's very hard for me to have anyone justify how $500 billion of capital has been created in the last 30 days, but we're in a very ESG driven world. And so that capital is going to flow to the largest company associated with that trend. And I think when you look at stocks, there's this idea of understanding like what's the narrative and what's going to get people to buy versus what's going to get people to sell. And it's like what I said earlier, the beauty contest used to be judged by fellow humans. And if you felt like you knew more than, let's say, 95% of your competitors, you, you, you knew who would be buying it after you. Now, today, you got to be cognizant of all the other things that are out there, which is why I think the hedge fund business and the asset management business is under so much uh, stress because there are participants and, and influences that go beyond what I think our natural judgment is. We should move to wrap up this first half because there's so much stuff we want to unpick in, in part two especially the future of this asset management industry, because you constantly hear the trope that these hedge fund managers are the titans bestriding the world and that asset management is this perpetual growth industry. But you've raised some critical points about whether it's going to be humans or computers that are going to be leading that charge in the next uh, decades. We'll be back with Seth Wonder, Will Page, and myself in part two. Back again with part two of Bubble Trouble, this time in conversation with Seth Wonder, exploring the hyper-competition in hedge fund management. And, you know, picking up from where we've just come off there, I, I'm interested to see these two you know, experts in their field unpack one conundrum for me, which is I watched the debate between should you put your money in a tracker fund with low fees or a star fund manager with high fees, and it swings. If we all believe in tracker funds, well, that creates an opportunity for a star fund manager. If we all believe in star fund manager, that creates an opportunity for a tracker fund. The pendulum swings, but it swings back again. With the introduction of algorithmic trading and retail trading and Robin Hood type platforms, is it swinging out of control? The question I've got for Seth is, is it inevitable that markets get overheated? And maybe we don't want to use the word bubbles, but is it inevitable that markets are prone to this sort of overheating over exuberance or we just are naturally in humans seeking that novelty are markets the same way are we always going to be looking for the asset class that no one knew about that we're the clever guy who's discovered one thousand percent i mean i look at it as the cross-section of capital availability and lack of regulation you know and and when you sit in that cross-section you're going to get I wouldn't say bad actors. You're just going to get greed. Whether it was back in the tech bubble 20 years ago, which was a function of certainly easy capital, stock options were fervent. Payments and management teams was a function of pumping and dumping stocks. And that obviously blew up in a somewhat historical, glorious way. Now you've got a couple of things. You've got the gamification of trading platforms. You've got the cross-section of, let's say, the SPAC market. And then obviously we'll see where crypto ends up, but crypto might be a very wonderful technology for a long period of time. And there's lots of things I certainly like about it, but it's clearly an under-regulated asset class at the moment. So yeah, I think it's human behavior. Like people are going to chase returns until they're told that they can't, and there'll be something else in the future. How that unwinds though, it will be different, but we've seen this, we've seen this play up before. You know, Alan Greenspan famously said the rational exuberance. I'm pretty sure it was in the beginning of 97 or the end of 96. The NASDAQ didn't peak until March 2000. So you, you, you the head of the Fed says something's irrational and you've got another three and a half years before that actually comes home to roost. We might be having this podcast conversation again in the next two, three years and still calling it bubble trouble. What you're describing here seems to be a bit of a structural change in finance. And I'm often fond of saying that in tech, next year's curriculum at universities is already out of date. There's a new 
tool, a new facility, who's teaching Google BigQuery today because that's going to be huge tomorrow. That that type of how do you keep pace with the market? Do you ever worry that students studying finance today are studying a market that's already been displaced by what you've been describing for the past 15, 20 minutes? Yeah, you know, uh, I've thought about that a lot. It's crazy, right? Who's coming out the university gate to enter this market? And what tools do they have? And are those tools relevant? You're baiting me into being an ageist, which I don't really want to be. But but the reality is, is that there is definitely a cohort of people who just don't believe in like the basic fundamentals of finance. So you think about the idea that like there's cash flows and there's credit and there's equity and like that circular triangle is unbreakable, except for when you input this other thing called the Fed and then they just decide that like they want to keep the machine going. So it, it's allowed for this imagination to, to go to a place where like, yeah, fundamentals of finance don't matter anymore. And I think it would be foolish to say that like things can't change, but I do think there's a cohort of investors and it's not even just the kids in college. I mean, there's kids in high school who are trading this stuff around the world who just have a different perspective of how financial markets work. And quite frankly, you know, they may be right. And maybe it's a generational shift and we all just have to be cognizant of it. And it goes back to the point earlier, the influences of what causes stocks to go up or down are very much driven by factors beyond fundamentals at this point. Seth, you're a student of history. Wasn't it always thus that we never knew what the fundamental value of Mississippi land or Dutch tulips or or any of those things were? In the roaring 20s, they had a bunch of stock promoters giving you the the functional equivalent of snake oil, and there was so little information. Now we have so much better information, but that doesn't prevent people from getting wildly unmoored from intrinsic value. History is not on the side that things have changed. Just think about this for a second. In four years' time, you'll have people studying economics at the age of 16 at school who have never lived in a period where interest rates exceeded inflation. Inflation is now at 3.5%. Interest rates are rock bottom. That thing that you told would never happen again has been happening now for 10, 12 years. It's crazy. I've got to get you on the basketball court real quick. Hot hands. The idea that if I can get the ball in the basket once, twice, three times, surely I'll get it in a fourth time. But of course, probability has no history. And can you kind of blend the hot hands fallacy into this discussion we have here, our belief in predicting the future? Where's the bubble trouble in the hot hands fallacy here? Well, what I worry about is when people are playing hot hands with like just the market as a general construct, I wouldn't say it's fine, but at least conceptually, it's sort of fine, right? Like in the sense that like when the market goes down, there's tons of liquidity. You can change your mind. The The chances that the market goes down 30% or 40% is th- those happen, right? But they're probably not financially ruining if people are properly diversified or have enough money that they could afford the risk. The hot hands problem happens now where people are just moving themselves way out on the risk curve and they're putting a tremendous amount of their personal wealth into whether it be altcoins or penny stocks or all these other suspended belief assets. And the problem is if you study history, as we were just talking about, those things go down like 90% or 95%. I mean, you you get wiped out and it's human behavior, right? You make a little bit of money in the, in the S&P 500 and all of a sudden you try to make a little bit of money in a $500 million altcoin you know, because the return volatility is higher. It's fun. The best, best, best hedge fund managers get like 52 to 54% of their picks, right? You know, the idea is, is that like, and if I stick with the baseball analogy, it's about slugging percentage, which is, are you hitting doubles and triples in the baseball game? Hopefully the biggest positions I have where the most amount of capital behind, I'm getting those right at like a 65, 70% clip. So if the people who are living and breathing this every day 
are getting just marginally above 50% right. You know, I think the idea that like the masses could just do a lot better. I mean, maybe they can. That's not to say that they, that they can. It's just statistically, like your point of probability, yeah, I don't think anyone in general is going to bet much above 50%. And it's probably a fool's errand to think if you've been on a hot hand to to keep rolling that dice, eventually it's going to catch up to you. Your uh, baseball analogy gets lost on the Scotsman because we just do not know the rules of that. But with basketball, if I can try and twist it, it's almost like if I get it right the first time, if I get it in the hoop the first time, and I take two steps back, I'll still get it the second. If I take three or four steps back, I get it the third. Maybe I can get it from the halfway line. And it's like that self-belief that if we all have a party over in the tech sector, that's going to be one huge party worth having. Yeah, well, look at like a free throw, right? If you want to stick with baseball, like the best free throw shooters shoot, you know, 87 to 91%. Yeah, you back up, what, five, six feet to the three-point line, and all of a sudden that percentage drops down to like 45%, right? So it doesn't take a lot of distance to see your uh, accuracy go down precipitously. I think there's another analogy just to draw to that with your hedge fund manager point is, you know, it's not about scoring a lot of points when you're up by 30 it's it's about whether when the game is on the line, you know you can make the shot. And what you're saying is when the hedge fund managers have conviction and they put a lot of capital behind something, those are the shots they need to get right. Whereas yeah. you have you always have a long tail in your portfolio that may or may not come good, but that's not where your capital is concentrated, where your big bets are. I always try to tell people like, you know, if you sell a stock at, you know, at point X and it goes on to go, let's say 30% higher, and then it comes down, you know, on the other side of that mountain, and then you sell it on the other side, whether you sold it now before the all-time high or sold it after the all-time high, the same price, it's the same price, right? But there's a point where you assume too much risk and things can go wrong. So like, you know, selling winners and taking gains and being right and putting money in your pocket is not a bad strategy. So one of the things we like to do to wind up all of our Bubble Trouble episodes is po- point out a couple smoke signals. What are the kind of things that, for generalist audience, you'd want to warn people, take note, keep an eye on, the kind of things that you want to bear in mind to avoid falling into bubble trouble? So what are a couple smoke signals... When you hear someone say that, you ought to just take a step back and and say, calm down for a sec. Oh, I think it's really easy. I think the narrative that a normal return might be in the hundreds of percents is when you have to start to step back and say like, okay, something is really wrong. I mean, I went to lunch yesterday with an old friend of mine who's starting a crypto-oriented fund. And, And I swear that he said... I think my fund is going to be a 5X in the first year. I didn't want to spit my food out, but I was I was shocked that he could say that. So I, I don't mind if like, you know, my 12 year old daughter has an opinion on a stock and she's just learning things. She's like, I heard this from a friend. Like, yeah, I realized that probably 12 year olds probably shouldn't have a ton of opinions on stocks. And so that, that raises my tentacle. But if she starts to say <laughs> things like, dad, we can double or triple our money in, you know, Dogecoin, you know, that's where I... I really get <laughs> uncomfortable. So that's the big one for me. I think the other one is just universal confidence. It's very unsettling to start committing capital where people have an undue level of confidence where it just, it almost is like a religious belief. And so you just have to have your you know eyes and ears up to things like that. But it's great that people are participating. And by the way, everyone should participate. And it's wonderful that information has been democratized and everyone should have an opinion. And if nobody wants professional advice, they don't need professional advice. All that stuff's great. When people are over their skis in, in 
confidence and speed and return expectations is when things go wrong. Over there, yeah, skis. that's what uh, that, that's why the uh, orthopedic surgeons love the uh, sport of skiing because they know that a certain number of people will end up at the bottom of the mountain with a need for a re- knee reconstruction. Yeah, one other point I'll make is, and and Seth, we were talking about this on a previous podcast, how this whole SPAC trend is, you know, the notion of give me money for an idea I haven't had yet. And, and just that the level of confidence that the SPAC promoter has to have, that they can go out and find an investment that they may or may not have any competence in, in judging and that you're abrogating that responsibility and handing it to somebody else is pretty staggering and certainly something that you'd expect regulators would pay a little bit more attention to. You, you missed the key point there. Give me money for an idea that I haven't found yet. Oh, and by the way, pay me an enormous fee through my imagination. It's fascinating. That takes us to the end of this week's Bubble Trouble. I want to thank Seth Wonder uh, for coming in from LA for this call, uh, for Richard Kramer, two experts in finance, chewing the fat on a topic which won't go away. Uh, A lot to take from here. If you're new to Bubble Trouble, we hope you'll follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Bubble Trouble is produced by Eric Newsom, Jesse Baker, and Julia Natt at Magnificent Noise. You can learn more at bubbletroublepodcast.com. Will Page and I will see you next time. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.